5: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is one of our From the Vault
0: selections from days of old.
4: That's right. This is an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This this particular episode originally published January 7th, 2016, and it is titled The Stone of Madness. I think this may
0: have been my most embarrassing skit performance on the show.
4: Uh, Well, we were playing characters from a Bosch painting, so we were we're supposed to sound grotesque even if we can't look grotesque.
0: You always got to have fun being a little boshy.
4: Yeah. It, I love episodes like this because this is another one of those where we have art and history and uh, early ideas about uh, human biology all coming together into a nice package.
0: Yeah, uh, those are some of the best ones, right? Art history and paleoscience.
4: Yes. And this one was also almost a video, as I recall. I think somebody was turning us into cartoons, and mercifully, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, because the skit that you mentioned here, they were, they were creating an animated version of that with grotesque versions of, uh, of ourselves.
0: God save us from the unflinching gaze of the animator.
4: All right. Well, on that note, let's dive in.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Why, my good fellow, you look a bit mad. (laughs) Why, I am a bit mad. (laughs) How did you you know? Are are you a physician? Well, of course. Didn't you notice my physician's cap? You mean that beautiful tin funnel on your head? Yes, yes, of course. Now, if you would, can you point to the part of your body that feels insane? Oh, right here in the skull, Doc. <laughs> right, uh, right here uh, in the skull. Ah, uh, then that's where the Stone of Madness awaits us. <gasps> can you can you remove it, Doc? Why, certainly. Just have a seat and allow me to trepan your cranium just large enough to remove the stone. Oh, better make it a big hole, Doc.
4: I, I'm about as mad as they come. I married two to rats to a bowl of porridge yesterday. Mm, so sometimes I wake up in a field and... I, a dog. I start chasing the local clergy around and every Yes, yes, it's going to be all right. Now, just let me reach
0: inside and... Ah, there it is. The Stone of Madness and Folly. The source of your mental maladies, surgically removed.
4: That'll be five silver. Ah, oh, here you go. But can I, uh, can I keep the stone? <laughs> Of course you can (laughs) Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind My name is Robert Lamb And I'm Joe McCormick I hope you enjoyed our little skit That is our attempt to audibly capture uh, the spirit uh, of a particular painting Uh, Namely... uh, The Cutting of the Stone or The Extraction of the Stone of Madness or The Cure of Folly, whatever you want to call it, by uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Um, This is a a painting from around 1494, and uh, it depicts uh, this sort of crazy uh, but highly uh, allegorical uh, surgery taking place.
0: Yeah, if you have never seen this painting, you should look it up. I'm going to do my thing and tell you to Google an image, but you really should see it to go with this episode. It'll be on the landing page yes, of uh, of the, the web version of this episode. But, it, yeah, it's a painting by Hieronymus Bosch. It's usually dated to around 1500 sometime. We, we read one source that said it had to be after 1502. Mm-hmm. Other people date it to the 1490s. Um,
4: yeah, as, as we mentioned in the past when we dealt with uh, some of Bosch's work, there's there's so little known about him uh, mm-hmm. that it's uh, there's a certain amount of mystery involved in all of this.
0: And one of the great things about it is the mystery of what motivated this painting, because what's happening in the painting, the the, the cutting of the stone of madness. You have a, a patient in the, the sort of the center left of the frame who is seated in a chair in the middle of a field and he looks quite distressed mm-hmm. uh, and he's reclining back in the chair as a man in a pink robe with a tin funnel on his head <laughs> cuts into the patient's scalp yes and the man uh, the man with the tin funnel on his head who's doing the cutting he looks fairly serene wouldn't you say yes he seems he's he seems dedicated to uh, the task at hand here. Which you could interpret as concentration and, and, you know, knowing what he's doing or you could interpret as a kind of callousness and insensitivity to this man's apparent grunting. He looks like he's in the middle of a really good grunt. Yeah. Uh, then to the right of the guy reclining in the chair who's having his head cut open, you have what appears to be – you think this is a monk Yeah, it looks very much like a monk. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's got a shaved top of his head and he's in some black garments. And then to the right of the monk, there is a woman with her head covered by a cloth in a dress draped over her with a book sitting on top (laughs) of her head that's clasped with a clasp. So what on earth do we make of this
4: painting? I should also uh, note that there is text with this painting. Right. Uh, if you have the appropriate zoomed out version. Uh, and it says, this a translation, of course. Master, cut away the stone. My name is Lubert Das. Uh, uh, Lubert which, Das. Yeah. And this is apparently a fool in uh, Dutch literature of the time. And, yeah. And the, the observer, uh, the, the viewer of this particular uh, piece would have known that.
0: Yeah. I think... At the time, calling calling a character Lubbert is kind of like mm-hmm. us calling a character Cletus now, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like a it's
4: like a joke name, the Dutch Cletus, if you will. Yeah. So that's the the one of the the key paintings that we're going to keep referring back to. But uh, but we see an overall trend. Uh, In medieval art. Um, Yeah.
0: Medieval and early modern art mm -hmm. in Europe that seems to be following this theme set up by Bosch, or at least first interpreted by Bosch as far as we know. This theme of cutting out the stone of madness. So in the previous painting, we had the guy with the tin funnel hat cutting the guy's head. He seems to be in the process of removing this titular stone the stone of mm-hmm. madness whatever that is but there are other paintings there's of course a cutting of the
4: stone of madness by Bruegel, right yeah peter Bruegel the elder uh lived uh, 1515 to 1569 responsible for a number of fabulous uh, pieces uh that i'm sure everyone's familiar with or maybe even had on your your dorm room wall right in college i know i did uh and this one shows uh this one has a number of individuals and several different um Uh, neurosurgical procedures going on in very crude and horrific fashion. Now, we
0: can point out that this painting, you should also look this one up so you can see it for yourself, but it's much more chaotic than the last one. The last one is a sort of uh, uh, a concentrated scene of a single cutting taking place. Mm -hmm. This is, it's a madhouse. There there are people all over having their heads examined and cut and multiple people doing the cutting. There's just general chaos. People are squatting and squirming in the background and trying to
4: Peek in and see what's going on. It's uh, it looks like a bad scene. Yeah, and and definitely remember the madhouse a uh, bit because we'll come back to that. The third uh, painting we want to reference here uh, is uh, is one by uh, Quentin Massys. Uh, he lived fourteen sixty six to fifteen twenty nine, and this one is called an Allegory of Folly. And this one is probably – it's probably my favorite of the the three just because it's so monstrous and weird.
0: Yeah, now it doesn't depict a surgery. Right. But it does depict – it follows the same theme of the stone of madness. There seems to be – in so you see a guy here. He looks like he is uh, perhaps mentally unsound in mm-hmm. some way. And he is clutching a staff that –
4: what is going on at the top of the staff, Robert? Well, there there are evidently a number of different uh, symbols going on in this piece. There's so much uh, 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 there's so much symbology uh, at play in in these these paintings, and we we don't have time uh, to <laughs> to, uh, to to tease it all apart. But yeah, he has a, a staff that has like a small individual that is with their, with exposed buttocks emerging from the staff. He has a rooster on his head. Uh, and he's, see, he doesn't seem in pain by his madness. He seems a little uh, mischievous, bemused. Uh, no, he seems to be contemplating the act
0: of marrying <laughs> two rats to a bowl of porridge. He does, yes. And on his forehead, there is a lump that you can see. It's a visible lump bulging from his forehead that appears
4: to be this stone. It's the stone of madness. Yeah, it looks very much, in a way, it, it also looks kind of like a third eye, uh, which is, I think, something that's kind of neat about this piece, that if you look at it with... Other artistic traditions uh, uh, loaded into your head, it kind of makes you wonder about you know the whole difference between enlightenment and madness, which uh, which will be a theme we come back to. but yeah, it looks like the stone of madness is not only in this uh, individual's head but it's poking through
0: yeah and so the, these are just a few examples, but this seems to be a general theme emerging in in medieval and and early modern European art of, of the stone of madness being a stone in the head associated with madness as they would understand it and the, the act of cutting for the stone to get it out. But does this refer to a real physical thing in any way? And does the act of cutting for it represent
4: a surgical procedure that really took place? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, Mystery uh, to consider, because ultimately you have like three possibilities here. Yeah. One is that, yes, there's something going on here. There's some physical malady in the head that is being removed. Uh-huh. Okay. Another possibility is that this is all a charlatan's game, right? Right. That uh, that a quack is coming along and saying, oh, you have a problem. Well, I can take care of that. I can remove the source of it. It's like cranial psychic
0: surgery. You know, the psychic surgeon would kind of scoop on your stomach for a bit and then sneak some chicken guts into his hand and pretend to be pulling things out of your body. Exactly. In this case, you'd have somebody cutting at your head and then by sleight of hand, sneaking a stone into the hand and saying, well, look what I pulled out of your brain. You know, here's the problem.
4: Yeah, it would. Yeah. In this case, it would be precisely uh, psychic surgery. Uh, I imagine a lot of people have seen this depicted in the movie Man in the Moon, of uh, the movie about Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Where he goes and this is performed for him. And yeah, and they would often, sometimes it would be chicken guts, but other times it would be inorganic objects. Yeah. And so you throw in a little, you throw in a little magic, a little superstition, and you can easily imagine the scenario in which this essentially a medieval witch doctor of sorts, a charlatan comes in. Ah, here's the stone. I've removed it. And now you are well. Yeah. Another option would be that there wasn't actually a stone in the head.
0: Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a real problem that was being addressed here. And it wasn't quackery, but it was just somebody who was well-meaning thought that there was some th- kind of thing that could be done to the head or something removed from the head to actually cure people and it just didn't
4: work. You know,
0: they were wrong,
4: but they were well-meaning. So that's what we're going to explore in today's episode. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, medieval surgery. We're going to be talking about trepanation. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, oh, the removal of actual stones from the body, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> particularly in the Middle Ages. Uh, and we'll get back around to what uh, what experts think this painting uh, and, and this Really, this uh, this artistic tradition is really saying.
0: Well, I think first we should take a look at the general atmosphere of surgery in the Middle Ages and then bridging into the early modern period here. One of the things that I, I think about uh about when we think back on medieval medicine is that it's easy for us to look back and make fun of people in the Middle Ages for believing in ridiculous cures, mm-hmm. you know, like – Oh, you've got migraines. You need to look at an ugly baby for 13 minutes and then <laughs> sprinkle some ground up boar tusk in your eye. Right. Uh, I mean, we all know that's not going to work. It seems ridiculous to us. Like, how did people fall for that? They must have been so stupid. But I, I'm not sure that's the case because considering the known alternatives at the time, this superstitious kind of try anything approach starts to make more sense. In the Middle Ages, if you were smart, the known alternatives, especially surgery, were often a last resort, and especially surgery. Yeah, to
4: open up the the body, particularly the body cavity, was uh, was a very dangerous proposition.
0: Yeah, so you may have heard about this term barber surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you've probably heard the story that, hey, you know, why, why do barber poles have this spinning red and white kind of twirl on them? Is it because they love candy canes and Christmas or is it – is it just an accident? Well, no, I, you know, the, the fact you probably heard about that is that that came from, you know, bloodletting, yeah. essentially <laughs> saying this is a place where you can get your bloodlet. So what, while the scientific ignorance of people in, in medieval Europe is sometimes I think a little bit overstated, like sometimes we underestimate just how smart people in the past were about things, medieval surgery was still probably about as scary as you're imagining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things about the time is that academic physicians, the people who really studied the body, the closest equivalent
4: to what we would think of as doctors today. These would be the learned individuals who had some degree of access to medical texts.
0: Yeah. They, they studied in universities. They knew what was up. They, they may have done dissections and stuff like that. But much of the actual cutting in surgery was not done by these people. Mm. So you had your experts who were the physicians and then Separately, you had these barber surgeons or these traveling surgeons who were more just kind of like uh, skilled people who, you know, they have a skill they can apply. So I can cut hair. I can cut stones out. I can cure cataracts. In many cases, uh, the authors who wrote surgical treatises of the time admitted that they had never performed the operations they were describing. Oh, wow. And in a way, it kind of makes sense because, you know, an old barber cuts your hair or shaves your head if you're a monk and they shave your beard. So – They've got the razor. Why not apply the razor to other things that need cutting? Like maybe if they need to extract some bone fragments from a club strike crush wound mm-hmm. or if they need to do some bloodletting, which truly was very common at the time.
4: Yeah. And plus, I would imagine their status is always, is already one in which they have close contact to the bodies of others. Uh, whereas I could, I could imagine that being less the case, uh, for, you know, learned uh, individual.
0: Yeah. And there's even a line in the Hippocratic Oath. You, you know, the Hippocratic Oath oh, yeah. is uh, from Hippocrates, the, the, the Greek physician. Um, he has a part of the Hippocratic Oath that says, and this is for doctors, I will not use the knife not even on sufferers from the stone, but will withdraw in favor of such men as are engaged in this work. Oh, wow. So this is, you know, doctor saying, I'm not going to do any surgery. (laughs) Uh, Kind of a strange attitude for us to consider, but that was the thought at the time.
4: Yeah, it's hard to imagine the medieval barber surgeon uh, TV show, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) where you would have the medical dramas playing out uh but the uh the individual who has all the theories and all the uh, uh the learning uh they're not actually going to do any of the cutting that yeah. goes to the secondary character.
0: Now th- this does still sort of apply today because of course we still have medical specializations. Mm-hmm. You have somebody who is, you know, they they focus on maybe family medicine versus somebody who's a neurosurgeon. Obviously, they wouldn't try to do each other's job. Right. You know, the, they have medical specialization. So that still carries through to today yeah. uh, to some extent. But we're not in this case letting barbers do the neurosurgery.
3: Father's Day is coming. A day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone.
1: your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.
0: Now, why was surgery so dangerous in the Middle Ages and so just so generally awful? Well, one of the things that medieval surgeons did not have is sterile equipment or mm-hmm. even knowledge of the need for antiseptic surgical methods. Uh, like, for example, there was a common belief at the time that pus was just an important part of the healing process <laughs> and that uh, there, there were a few medieval surgeons... Who, uh, who tried things like washing wounds with wine. But it really wasn't until following Joseph Lister in the 1860s that antiseptic surgery started to catch on everywhere and become the new norm. So, uh, so you might have had a few people who got the right idea early on, but it was not widespread practice to
4: practice antiseptic surgery. So then this is one of the, the reasons. This is the primary reason why yeah. any opening of the body – any surgical opening is is almost invariably going to become infected yeah, because of the, the, the lack of sterility.
0: Yeah, yeah. Putting dirty things deep inside your body, it it's not good for yeah, you. Like a,
4: like a grubby hand
0: reaching mm-hmm. in to pull a stone right. out of your uh, lower abdomen. Who may have just been handling chicken guts for yeah. all you know. I mean, who knows? Or uh, collecting dead rats for the town's local bounty. Uh, anyway, uh, this, <laughs> so there's that. They also did not have effective anesthesia and pain control. Mm. And this, I mean, you can imagine in your head exactly what the problem is, but maybe you're not imagining the extent to which this is a problem. The, it's not just that it hurts for the patient. It's difficult to perform internal surgery even on a
4: very willing participant yeah. if they're awake. Yeah, if any of you have ever... um it's even difficult, I think, for a lot of us to understand because there's a level of pain we're talking about here that a lot of people have not experienced. And even if you undergo surgical procedures thanks to anesthesia, you don't have to experience them. But I remember uh, the one time I tried to perform a self-surgery of a sort, uh, I had a, a toenail issue, which I Ugh. which I tried to um, – uh, like an ingrown issue stemming from a, a injury uh, – I tried to correct it myself, uh, and it, what, the, with just like a butter knife and some hemp rope? No, you know, I had, uh, and, and it wasn't, you know, quite surgery I, it, by any means, but, um, I tried to, to take care of the situation using tweezers, Ugh. you know, and uh, clippers. And the, the pain was just like blinding, like to, to where it, I, there were flashes in my eyes. And then I realized, okay, I need to actually go to, uh, <laughs> to a professional about this, but, uh, but imagine that extrapolated to, not even self-surgery, but, yeah, surgery on, on, on any individual where uh, high levels of pain are just going to be the norm. You're going to yeah. have to strap the individual down or have two uh, ruffians bring right. them to a wall or to a bed. you got to hire some thugs to help you with your
0: surgery. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so there there were some potions and stuff at the time. I mean obviously people were aware of some types of drugs, but the point was that they, they didn't have uh, controllable – Anesthesia, mm-hmm. So they could maybe give you some hemlock or, you know, these these crazy potions that were just as likely to kill you yeah. as they were to put you under. So uh, so they might have had that in some scenarios or they might have just tried to do it with you awake because they knew, oh, you know, it looks like people die a lot of times when we anesthetize them. So th- th- this was a problem. Medieval surgery, just generally bad. Uh, common procedures that were practiced by medieval surgeons, bloodletting that that's a big one at the time they believed in the you know humorism like the idea that there were these four humors in the body that could get out of balance and you could fix some things by letting extra blood out uh, a big thing at the time was the treatment of battlefield wounds such as the removal of arrows and so at the time, surgery was much, much more often external from what we know, at least. There's actually sort of a dearth of information about what surgeons in, in medieval Europe were doing. We don't have quite as much information on this as we would like to have. But from the records we do have, uh, it seems surgery was very often external, such as the treatment of a surface wound or other problems near the outside of the body and for all the reasons we've already stated internal surgery going deep inside the body for anything was dangerous and rare though it did happen for some extremely problematic things such as bladder stones and we will definitely get back to uh, stones the the body's the body's lithos in, <laughs> uh in a bit here, but I think we should first turn our attention back, uh, thinking back on, on the Bosch painting and the ones that followed it to the head.
4: That's right. Yeah, because essentially what's going on here appears to be going on here is that they are uh, they're performing what we now call a um, uh, craniotomy. Uh, but what has been uh, historically known as uh, trepanation or trepanning uh-huh. uh, in which and this is just basically the opening of the skull, mm-hmm. the creating of a, of a hole in the skull.
0: Now, now we find evidence of trepanation going back to well be- before the Middle Ages in, in Europe. I mean, it goes back to prehistoric times. Oh, right? yeah.
4: Thousands of years. You see accounts of it among the ancient Egyptians, the Chinese, the Indians, the Romans, the Greeks, early uh, Mesoamerican civilizations. Uh, there are a lot of a uh, lot of interesting work has come out of South America and I believe also in, uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea as well.
0: But we've even found Neolithic. Uh, remains human remains that had skulls that it had clearly had the operation performed on them and survived. Right. There's a hole in the skull. Yeah. And it has been smoothed over where the person didn't die from this surgery, at least not at least not for a long time.
4: Yeah. And so it's, it's often been an archaeological uh, uh, mystery that uh, individuals have, have looked into. You know, what, what's going on with this skull? Is this a wound? Did this was this individual just, uh, you know, clubbed with something or was there uh, some sort of a surgical procedure? And if there was a surgical procedure, why did they carry it out? Was it both? Was it just purely magical? Were they trying to let a demon or spirit out of the head? Or were they trying to uh, deal with uh, cranial and brain injuries? Yeah. Uh, because it, today, clinical trepanation uh, remains a treatment uh, for epidural and... Um, subdural hematomas. Um, And plus, it gives us a basic surgical entry point to the brain itself. Yeah. I mean, if you've heard about trepanation before, you think about, okay, that's just a
0: crazy, you know, why would somebody drill a hole in the skull? It's just because they thought there were demons, you know. But there are real medical reasons, as you're saying. And I guess we don't know what the ancients knew. You know, it's hard to say, whether in some cases they may have been doing it just for superstitious reasons or they had some kind of medical prompting that was legitimate.
4: Yeah. It, and you get into, um, uh, you know, an argument back and forth over that, too, because to a certain extent, um, archaeologists in the past have looked at some of these examples and they've, they've said, well, there's no way that these individuals were carrying this out for a legitimate medical purposes. these are savages these are ancient uh, people mm-hmm. uh, but uh there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they were actually dealing with um, they were actually performing medical procedures to deal with with head wounds to deal with uh swelling of the brain mm-hmm. um due to uh, you know blunt force trauma to the skull trying to relieve that pressure uh by creating uh, this hole in the skull itself.
0: Yeah. But, of course, trepanation doesn't have necessarily a very good record in terms of the survivability of the procedure.
4: Oh, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even by the late 19th century, only 10 percent of patients survived a Western trepanation due to infection. And I, and I want to stress Western, because when you do look to some of the so-called primitive cultures out there, uh, it seems that they they actually may have had a uh, a lower mortality rate oh, with their trepanations. Um, but uh, eventually we were able to bring that up, obviously, because uh, neurosurgery is is not the – uh, you know, a ninety percent mortality rate endeavor right. that it used to be. I mean, we're just generally better at uh at fighting off
0: infection post surgery now. Uh, there are a lot of reasons now that surgery in general is safer.
4: Yeah, and a lot of people point to uh, American neurosurgeon Harvey uh, Cushing, uh, lived uh, eighteen sixty nine through nineteen thirty nine, uh, as as one of the key individuals who was able to bring that neurosurgery mortality rate down to less than ten percent. Uh, and and ultimately ushering in uh the modern age of neurosurgery in which some people do neurosurgery just for fun. Yeah, well for fun or for enlightenment, yeah, um consciousness expansion. Yeah, yeah I don't want to I don't want to go too far off the beaten path here, but we did see the rise of um, often self-trepanned psychonauts mm-hmm. in the uh, 1960s and 70s. You had uh, this individual um uh, who was Dutch interestingly enough, yeah. uh tying into uh the origins of our paintings here, like Bosch. Yeah. Uh, former medical student Bart Hughes lived, uh, 1934 through 2004, uh, and he stands as voluntary trepanation's pioneering uh, visionary. And <laughs> so, so, so he added the idea that trepanation is good
0: for your mind, right?
4: Yeah. He, um, so, and this was apparently, uh, he admits this was a mescaline induced, uh, revelation, uh-huh. uh, but his whole thing is that when we became bipeds, when we rose up onto legs, it altered the way, um, uh the fluids uh move through our brain it altered blood flow it also altered the the movement of uh, cerebral spinal fluid hmm. and um, and and so he thought that this would be he was trying to figure out how can i uh you know get healthy flow of blood to the brain uh so he considered um he considered uh, making a whole uh in his uh, the base of his spinal column to drain out uh, some of the fluid.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Uh, but he eventually decided, okay, what I'll do is I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll trypan myself. I'll, I'll make this hole in my skull. And it's important to note here, we're talking about just a hole in the skull. He's not drilling all the way into brain. It's, but, the, but the premise uh, here is that if you were to just remove a little bit of skull there, uh, it would allow the, um, the, the pressure inside the brain to be relieved and therefore allow uh, increased blood flow through the brain, allow a better removal of toxins. There's, a, there's actually some interesting research going on and in, going into this even today, uh, and they make some kind of compelling arguments for it. <laughs> uh, but then experts also um, argue that brain function is not limited by normal blood flow, and then increased brain metabolism might actually stress the system. So it's not it's not a cut and dry situation, but you have individuals oh, it's out a there cut and wet situation, situation, yeah. But you have individuals out there who are very strong proponents of trepanation as a means of achieving a higher state of consciousness. Okay, and so
0: this informs our interpretation of the painting how? Like are we thinking that maybe what we're seeing in this painting is uh, we're misunderstanding it and it's a form of trepanation
4: or it's re- just sort of related to the general concept? Uh, essentially, it means that if, if there's any kind of stone removal going on, if they're removing a stone from the brain, either in fact or merely allegorically, then they're then they're dealing with trepanation. And certainly, trepanation predated these paintings. It was practiced to some degree uh-huh. at the time, uh, and uh, and and it would have been known uh, to the artists. There were woodcuts, there were uh, you know instruction uh, manuals, and many of the medical texts showing how this was a, uh, pr- this procedure was carried out. So uh, as you probably well know, uh, kidney stones and bladder stones are very much a reality. Yes, they are. And as Joe will shortly relate to us, their surgical removal is is, is also very much reality and, and one that dates back to antiquity. But is there
0: actually such a thing as a cranial stone? I mean, we know there, there are mineral formations that can happen in
4: the body. Can that happen in your brain? Well, can it happen is a, is, is a question that we'll get to. Yeah, was it happening at the time? Did individuals think that this was happening uh, yeah. in the Middle Ages and in the uh, centuries to follow? Well, as related by Mathis Kirschel, Frederick Mall, and Philip Van Kerenbrock in the uh, paper A Stone Never Cut For, a New Interpretation of the Cure of Folly by uh, Hieronymus Bosch, published in the journal International Urology, uh, there's no evidence to suggest this was ever carried out in real life. There are no historical sources from the period that mention genuine or fraudulent uh, stone operations. And I also want to add that uh, apparently there were existing accounts of, of of quackery that was going on in the Netherlands during the 15th and 16th century. Oh they, no doubt. They don't mention uh, any kind of fake stone removals or or fake uh, trepanations going on. Uh, but it was presented theatrically in performances for the masses because clearly the painting makes us think the painting has a lot to say. And you yeah. can imagine that extrapolated to street performances for the common individual. Yeah, the idea was that there there were plays that had scenes of the, the extraction
0: of the Stone of Madness, yeah. right? Cutting for the stone in the head. Not unlike uh, our little drama at the beginning of this episode. It, it makes you wonder uh, because what other types of fiction that we have today depict things going on that are plausible in the same way that cutting for the stone is a plausible thing that could have happened. You can imagine quacks cutting into people's heads, pretending to remove a stone.
4: Uh, oh, ev- without researching it any, I would be tempted to say um, nefarious kidney removal while on vacation in oh, yeah. a dangerous place. You know, you yeah, that? exactly. Yeah. If,
0: if historians of the future look back at our fiction mm-hmm. as a as a judge to see what's happening in our culture today – And they're not – they can tell the difference between fantasy and realistic fiction. You know, they don't think that Star Wars is happening in our culture today. But, you know, they look at some kind of realistic drama where somebody has a kidney stolen in Las Vegas. They wake up in a bathtub full of ice. Um, I mean, they could conclude, oh, this must have been something that happened a lot in the early 2000s.
4: (laughs) Because clearly it's depicted in their art. Yeah. And these are not – these films are not just complete works of fantasy. So, therefore –
1: your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.
4: And that brings us back to actual stone removal. The sort of stone removals we know um, were carried out or attempted uh, in many cases at the time.
0: Yeah, so I mentioned earlier how in the Middle Ages coming into the early modern period, surgery really was a last resort, uh, especially any significantly invasive surgery, deep internal surgery. That was really, really a last resort. At the time, surgeons just didn't have safe, reliable ways of putting a patient to sleep. So as we said earlier, you have to imagine internal surgery with knives going deep inside you while you're awake. Or taking a drug that might kill you. <laughs> and that's that's an interesting – it's a real Sophie's choice there. Yeah. Right? Uh, so uh, you remember that line from the Hippocratic Oath I said where I will not cut not even for the stone mm-hmm. – that's sort of an indicator that, of all the things people would come to an ancient or medieval doctor begging to be cut open for, at the time when this was painful and dangerous, stones in the urinary tract have got to be some of the the worst things to merit a mention like this. You know, like so the doctor is saying, you know, uh, of all the things that I I might be tempted to do for a person that I shouldn't do, cutting for a stone has got to be near the top to merit a mention like this.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I've never suffered the experience of having a stone uh, in my body, Uh, but I know we have listeners who surely have, and I would would love to hear from you and your account and how that ties into your uh, appreciation of our episode today.
0: Uh, Yeah, I want to read a little selection from a a paper called The History of Urinary Stones in Parallel with Civilization by Ahmet Tefekli and Fatin Sezairly. So this is what they write. During the medieval period in Europe, 1096 to 1438, there was little activity in the management of stone disease. In this era, lithotomists, and that's, you know, a person who would Remove stones, the lithos, the Mm -hmm. stone for a living. Lithotomists were essentially commercial travelers moving from town to town, looking for business and cutting all who came their way. (laughs) Often uneducated and occasionally dishonest, some were great showmen. The procedure was generally performed in the public without anesthesia and generally lasted a few minutes. However, lithotomists were held responsible for their bad results and fined accordingly. So as we've said, this surge. Yeah, that sounds cute. Right. <laughs> the surgery is dangerous. Uh, w- w- didn't you have some stats on the mortality rates?
4: Yes. And these are from uh, that a stone never cut uh, paper that I referenced earlier. And I'll include a link to that on a landing page for this episode. But uh, around the 15th century, you saw about 50 percent. But our sources on that are a little... Yeah, I'd have imagine to imagine that's back.
0: approximate. Yeah. Uh,
4: from the 17th century up to the mid-18th century, you see variable um, uh, stats. You see it as low as 2.5, but also as high as 67.8. Sounds like it matters who's
0: doing your your uh, stone cutting.
4: Yes, as well as who is undergoing the surgery. Uh, apparently, the best outcomes uh, occurred when you had a boy suffering a small stone. The, the older the individual, the larger the stone, uh, and also if the individual is female, these would all really um, tip uh, the scales uh, in the, uh, in favor of death.
0: OK. So do we have an actual account of what – like did anybody make records of what this was like on the ground? Yes, they did
4: uh, because this, these tended to be very memorable <laughs> uh, per, uh, surgeries. Uh-huh. uh and uh, one that we have here today, this one uh, actually ties into a painting, as I'll uh, mention here in a second. But uh, it uh, concerns Jan de Doot, a Dutch blacksmith and uh, a do-it-yourself uh, lithotomist. De Doot, huh? yeah, Jan de Doot, Jan de Doot. <laughs> and uh, so okay. that's a, that's just the best name for a do-it-yourself lithotomist. It is, yeah. And there and there is a painting of the painting of this individual called "Portrait of Jan de Doot" by uh, Carol. Uh, De Savoyen, and this was uh, painted in 1655. I'll try to include a link to this painting so you can see it. Oh, he um, looks real satisfied with himself. Yeah, uh, explain uh, describe this painting for the uh, listeners, Joe.
0: Well, he's posed as if for a camera and he's in his left hand holding up what looks like an egg but i guess it's supposed to be a huge stone <laughs> and in his other hand he's just just kind of near the bottom of the painting posed on a table he's got what looks like a razor yeah uh, so and and he's he he's not exactly smiling but he's got pride in his eyes
4: yeah <laughs> and uh as the painting uh, might suggest he apparently survived at least for 5 years but um uh, we know of, of his case uh, from an account uh, written by uh, Nicholas Tulps, uh, sixteen seventy two uh, text, um, observationes medicae, and uh, and this is this is just a, a a sample translated obviously from that book. Only letting his brother help him, he instructed him to pull aside his scrotum while he grabbed the stone in his left hand and cut bravely. In the perineum with a knife he had secretly prepared. I don't know why it was secretly prepared. Uh, (laughs) And by standing again and again, managed to make the wound long enough to allow the stone to pass. To get the stone out was more difficult. And he had to stick two fingers into the wound on either side to remove it with leveraged force. And it finally popped out of hiding with an explosive noise and tearing of the bladder. Now the more courageous than careful operation was completed, and the enemy that had declared war on him was safely on the ground. He sent for a healer who sewed up the two sides of the wound together. Oh, that's that's just troubling. <laughs> I and I will note that in the uh, painting uh, here, portrait of Jan de Dute, uh, we don't see uh, we only see him from the waist up. So God <laughs> knows what the finished state His of pants things was. His were just uh, soaked below. in blood. Yeah. yeah. And there are other accounts out there as well. There was one in particular that I ran across years years ago, and I was trying to find it. But it involved uh, I want to say a, a royal individual or an astronomer, or someone of you know of means and uh, importance, uh, who had to undergo a stone removal surgery, and it was just a bloody disaster, and they ended up dying on the table. But I, for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. Ugh.
0: Okay, so we've seen that sometimes the body grows some stones inside it. You've got these uh, these uh, formations of mineral deposits that uh, can be very problematic, especially depending on where they occur. Sometimes they're so problematic, medieval surgeons would go in for them despite how dangerous surgery was at the time. And how exactly does this affect the head? Because like we've said, we're not really aware from the public record that people ever cut into people's skulls for stones at the time. Right. But maybe, just maybe, there's one sort of uh, cranial phenomenon we could look at as a as a possible candidate for what what's going on here. If this is intended to depict a real scene,
4: yeah. If you're just saying, is it remotely possible? Yeah, that that, that Bosch could, that this could happen. Yeah, that
0: Bosch is depicting something that could have really happened. And here we want to talk about the meningioma. So a meningioma is a name for like a class of tumors that affect the brain and the spinal cord, though they actually don't grow from brain or spinal cord tissue itself. But from the meninges or the meninges, uh, which are thin layers of tissue that wrap around the outside of these organs So around the outside of your brain, you've got a thin layer of this tissue. And this is where this meningioma can occur. It's it's like a tumor. Um and because they appear on this outer tissue, they typically happen at the top or the outer curve of the brain, also sometimes at the base of the skull. But this would make sense in the picture, right? The top or the outer curve of the brain. Yes. Uh, that's where we see Bosch's uh, tin funnel hat wearing doctor might be the generous word cutting <laughs> here. Uh, so these these tumors are Typically non-cancerous, they're containing cysts or calcifications, interestingly. So that would be collections of minerals, you know, stone formations, just like you might have in your bladder or something. So a mineral collection or cyst. But, of course, since they grow, they press against the brain. Even though they're non-cancerous, they still need to be removed so this could be what we're seeing in the painting. I, I don't know what you think about that.
4: Yeah, I think in terms of just uh, – I don't think it it is what we're seeing. But in terms of uh, of making an argument, what is it possible? Is it is it realistically possible that, that, that there could be a stone of madness? Like this is the closest real-world possibility. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in what case would it be a stone of madness? Well, uh, there's a paper uh, that uh, referred to this is a 2002 letter to Neurology India by uh, uh, Prasad uh, Krishnan uh, and, uh, and a few other uh, co-authors as well. And uh, they they were looking at a particular individual that uh, that had uh, one of these uh, uh, meningiomas uh, growing inside the skull. And they found that it can re- result in uh, irrelevant speech. Forgetfulness, behavioral abnormalities such as uh, disinhibition, emotional liability, and uh, just excessive uh, talking. Huh. So specifically, they looked at a 65-year-old patient, uh, and uh, they they actually uh, performed a craniotomy and gross total excision of the lesion, uh, cutting her, uh, curing her of, of all the symptoms in the process. So, in other words. This is one case in 2012 with, of course, modern surgical um, uh, tools and uh, procedures uh, um, uh, at hand. The surgeons were able to remove a stone like growth from a human skull and uh, and in doing so, cure the individual of their abnormal mental state. Huh. Okay. So while we have no evidence that operations
0: like this took place in the Middle Ages or, or Bosch's time, it is at least possible that yes. this could be the kind of thing going on here. Yeah. So it, in, in it a would, sense... It would sort of match the scene described. Yeah.
4: You, so it, it might be a case where accidentally art ends up uh, giving us a glimpse of what uh, an actual surgeon's uh, blade would one day uncover.
0: Okay. Well, I, I've got another question, though. One of the things that I, when I was researching medieval surgery I mm-hmm. came across is that one one of the most common surgical procedures in, in medieval Europe would have been... uh treatment of battlefield wounds yeah so what if what we're actually seeing is something that is that has not just grown inside the head not a stone of madness but a missile of madness
4: something that has come from the outside and is being treated or removed yeah I mean indeed uh, contemporary and ancient use of trepanation uh, was often employed uh, to deal with head trauma uh either to you know mitigate brain swelling due to blow to, uh, blow to the skull or to remove a bone fragment or even a missile of some sort mm-hmm. from uh from underneath the skull or in the skull or in po- possibly uh in the brain. Uh so I think you could make a granted weak case for the stone of folly having some relation to battle injury. Um only in this case uh, you've not been hit by a stone from the enemy's sling but rather a, a dose of folly from the fate. I guess. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, when I was preparing for this episode, one of the things I did was I, I watched part of a short documentary that had a scene uh, about an injury that the young Henry V actually suffered on the battlefield when he was a teenager, where he got an arrow lodged in his head. Uh-huh. And they were talking about what happened when uh, it was a non-fatal wound, but it, you know, at the time, of course, if they leave the arrowhead in your wound, it's going to get infected and you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, Talked about the procedures that the surgeons of the day went through to try to remove this arrowhead from his head, and eventually he he lived. Uh, he he survived the procedure, but th- this does kind of show how even at a time when surgery is known to be very dangerous, if you've got a major head wound, you really don't have any other choice. Yeah, it's either
4: do it and possibly die, or just die. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this this brings us back though to to the painting itself. So we've already established that cutting for your urinary stones was complicated and dangerous treatment, fifty percent mortality rate. Furthermore, uh, trepanation was an even riskier proposal at the time, uh, perhaps as high as ninety percent mortality rate, maybe even more, depending on who's trying to carry it out. Uh, so whether cutting into the brain or bowel, surgical practices of the time were just not up to snuff. Yeah. And as far as treatment of madness goes, this was an age before uh, psychiatry was even a word. We didn't get yeah. that until 1808. Uh, the four humors still held sway over our understanding of human experience. Uh, there were, and there were very few treatments uh, for uh, mental illness. Uh, the asylum was really one of the, the few options for which, individuals who really had uh, severe mental illness. Which wasn't really a treatment. Right. And that's actually one of the arguments for uh, Peter Bruegel, the Elder's uh, painting, Cutting uh, Out of the Stone of Madness, which you said, it looks like a madhouse. Yeah. One argument is 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 that he was depicting the uh, brutal treatment of afflicted individuals within the madhouse, not that they were actually uh, carved upon and had stones pulled out of their heads, but that the treatment they received was... Um, was comparable to that level of brutality and ineffectiveness.
0: OK, so, yeah, it's it's sort of just like an extreme example that's fictional to communicate the reality of the total uh, the total picture of the conditions, much like you might say, use this not really very plausible scenario of waking up in a bathtub uh missing a kidney mm-hmm. uh to depict the general sort of uh lawlessness of a of a society or something like that right like, you know the predatory nature of wherever you are las vegas or something
4: yeah now, in terms of, of actual trepanation, it, it was certainly on the, the table for head trauma, and psychosurgery was proposed in Europe as early as the twelfth century, but there are actually very few reports of it being effectively employed before the 20th. Yeah. So it seems like the, the predominant theory here is that this painting is there there are a number of things going on. But one possibility here is that it's less about an actual surgery and more about a symbol for the uh, the 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 ineffectiveness of surgery as a whole yeah so it's not just about our
0: cruelty but also about our our ignorance and fumbling
4: yeah like we we have such a a disastrous record removing these stones that are occurring in the body yeah let's just push it into a, a more comedic and symbolic uh area by having the the quack surgeon or perhaps just Surgeon with, you know, a blundering and incomplete understanding of human physiology and imagine then him operating on an even more dangerous part of the human anatomy, the the brain itself, and then trying to remove some stone from from that part of the body as well. So in Bosch's painting, uh, it seems that it's less about any about this being an actual procedure that was attempted but more uh all right let's take the 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 stone removal surgeries that we know were occurring and that we know had such a disastrous record let's extrapolate that and then um, and take our fictional doctor who's either a quack or just a, a you know a blundering but well-meaning individual who's dealing with just a limited understanding of human physiology and and uh and and and, and, and disease and infection and let's have him not operate on on this already dangerous part of the human body but let's have him operate on an even more dangerous area for <laughs> surgery, the human brain itself. Let's have him pull a stone out of there.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of a a, a fictional symbol of not only – not just like Bruegel's vision of our the cruelty and chaos of the madhouse, but also of our just lack of knowledge and the way we fumble through medicine.
4: Yeah, and there, and there are additional interpretations that are sometimes thrown in as well. The quack – uh, interpretation that we mentioned already that it's essentially psychic surgery. Yeah. Uh, there's also the idea that the folly here is the patience for wishing the swift, easy removal of a thing which must be won either spiritually or, you know, via the mysteries of alchemy.
0: Yeah, a fool and his money are easily parted. Yeah. Another one of the interpretations that I'm i am not sure I can agree with, but I at least found very interesting and liked, mm-hmm. uh, came from that, that paper you referenced, A Stone Never Cut For, which uh, it was a good, it was interesting to read. Uh, they pointed out the three people in the painting. Uh, so the, the patient is laying in this chair, suffering, as we said, reclining, seeming to groan. Oh, get it out. You've got the doctor cutting him and then you've got the monk and then you've got the lady sitting there with the book on her head. Mm-hmm. And the way they interpreted the painting was that he's surrounded by symbolic characters embodying medicine, religion and philosophy, ah, so and that,
4: that none of them really offer him a solution. The philosopher being the what looks like a nun with the closed book, the sealed book uh, resting atop her head. Yeah. I'm, and, I, I'm not sure if I buy that interpretation, but I, mm, I like it. Yeah, I, I like it too. and, and I'm, Yeah, I mean, she still looks more like a nun than a philosopher to me, but you know, that's, that's the rough thing about interpreting these older pieces of art is they were not meant to speak. To me or you, they were they were meant to speak to an individual uh, living in the time. Yeah. So they're they're kind of speaking across time and space here, and we can just do our best to try and interpret them. But but I do like that interpretation because it takes it, it extrapolates it beyond uh, mere medical science, and it just shows this. It's, it's a comical take, but also one that uh, that kind of just pokes fun at, at our attempts to master anything. Here are the the three learned individuals and what are they accomplishing with uh, against this individuals pain discomfort or madness boredom yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so there you have it uh i'm going to make sure that the landing page for this episode links to examples of all the uh, works of art that we referenced here so you can pull them up look at them uh, draw your own conclusions make your own interpretations about what's going on uh, and uh, we'll also link to that uh, to some of the papers that we referenced here as well
0: but I'd say if you are feeling not quite well in your, uh, in your mind or in your mental state, uh, let us advise you don't cut for the stone or pay <laughs> anyone else to cut for the stone. Go, go see a modern
4: medical doctor. And if that doctor has a tin funnel on his or her head, pay extra. <laughs> yeah, pay, pay extra. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, hey, in the meantime, uh, be sure to visit stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our social media accounts. Uh, follow us there. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Blow the Mind. We're on Tumblr as Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And
0: if you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or to let us know your favorite mystery from an ancient or medieval painting, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.